From the Vaults, audio from Edmonton's past. This recording consists of an interview of James F. Falconer conducted by John McIsaac on November 27, 1981. This material was recorded on a 5-inch open reel tape and was digitized by an archivist on March 25, 2021. Our interview today is with Mr. James F. Falconer. Uh, Mr. Falconer, could you tell our listeners uh, where and when you were born? Well, I was born in Northern Ireland in June of 1916 and uh, attended elementary school there for a number of years. And then uh, we came to Canada and settled in Edmonton in 1929. Mm-hmm. And of course, started school again in Edmonton. Why is it that your family chose to come to Edmonton? Well, we had relatives out here. Uh, my uncle had uh, homesteaded in the Busby Legal area as early as 1912. My sister had uh, come out here to live with him. And uh, this sort of pointed us in this direction since the family was leaving Ireland. Uh, one brother had gone to Australia and as I said my sister had come to Canada. So it, was, it looked as though we would all leave one at a time. And instead of doing that the family decided to all come to one place and reunite in a new country where there were obviously greater opportunities. Mm-hmm. And what sort of work did your dad do? Well he was a farmer all his life. And so was his forefathers mm-hmm. for five generations that I can trace back. Mm-hmm. And of course, you were still at school. You went to uh, the Evident Technical High School, did you not? Well, first of all, we went. I went to the McDougall School, uh, and uh, it may be noted in history that the school burnt down. That was one of the few schools in the history of Edmonton that ever burnt to the ground and uh, it burnt the year I was attending that school and as a result of that we were all the students were farmed out to other schools in, uh, in the nearby areas such as Oliver, H. E. Gray and Norwood and so forth. I spent the balance of that year in Norwood school and then the next year I went to the technical school was your family living in Edmonton at the time? Yes, we uh, had bought a house on 4th Street, which was only three blocks from the technical school. Mm-hmm. So it was very handy for me to walk across and come back for lunch and so forth. That would have been 4th and around 7th, 7th Avenue? 7th Avenue, yes. Yeah. And, and what sort of neighborhood was that? Was it a well, it was a strictly residential neighborhood. Uh, there were a lot of railway people who lived in that area quite a number of mounted policemen who resided there and also city employees. For example, the head of the electric light department lived uh, a few doors away. So did the superintendent of the government garage, Inspector Marsham and Staff Sergeant Wilson of the mounted police. Dr. Cairns, the veterinarian, lived across the street and there were quite a number of other people who were involved in 
either railway activities, city activities, or in, in police work. So it sounds like a good cross-section of blue and white-collar workers, really. Yes, it was a, a district that had been established, I presume, around 1907 to 1910, uh, consisting mainly of large frame three-story houses with uh, a veranda either on the front or on the front and side uh, with uh, an attic. It was a typical uh, design of house that was uh, used in those days and they uh, stood up very well and would uh, be standing yet if it wasn't the fact that there was an encroachment, a change in density and in zoning which permitted apartment houses to go into that area and also the fact that 7th Avenue became a kind of a, a ribbon development of commercial enterprises rather than homes as it, as it had been from 1900 up to probably 1940 or better. Could we talk a bit about the, uh, the, the technical school? It became Victoria Composite School, did it not, or, or, or am I confused? Well, the, the technical school had been in existence for many years. It was uh, brought into existence by a trustee named Dr. John Park about 1912, and it was uh, uh, designed to provide vocational training for students who had uh, an interest in that type of work and an aptitude in that direction. It uh, did not neglect the academic subjects uh, at all. The, there was a great deal of emphasis put on English, mathematics, uh, and literature, and all those other subjects. But in addition to that, they uh, gave uh, opportunities to the students in uh, machine shop practice, motor mechanics, uh, woodwork, that is uh, carpentry and uh, cabinet making. Uh, there were good uh, courses in radio work, electrical technology, uh, tinsmithing, uh, mechanical drawing, and architectural drawing. And they had some very, very fine teachers and instructors. The uh, student population was not as large as you would find in a technical school today. Uh, the principal knew every student, and uh, the students were pretty dedicated uh, kids because they were there to learn. They were there because they had an interest in not only getting their high school education, but they wanted to do something practical uh, so that they could have some outlet for their talents in design or in handicrafts or in uh, construction or something of that kind. Uh, there were very interesting teachers on the staff. There were those like the principal, Mr. Hilton, who had traveled widely in South America and other places. He had written a book on geography, which was used in the school. 
he uh, had a great knowledge of science and uh, uh, gave to the students a great deal of information and education which wasn't found in the regular textbooks. So did the other teachers as well. For example, Mr. Gibbs who taught civics and architectural drawing was a member of the Legislative Assembly and he was a city alderman and he had been a high uh, he had been a school trustee previous to that so he had a great background in civics to teach the subject of civics and uh, I suppose you would call it social studies today but it was much more than uh, that we understand it was a way of life it was a whole study of of the country we learned a great deal about the St. Lawrence Waterway and about all kinds of things that were a bit removed from just uh, the Edmonton City Council or the old school board as it uh, was um, carried on in those days. He uh, gave many of his students an interest in politics and uh, I'm sure some of them followed it. I know that one student who was in the class with me became mayor of Stettler and I got an interest in school board and council and of course followed that in later years. Uh, what sort of extracurricular activities were you involved in? Debating clubs, sports, that sort of thing is what I have in mind. Well, I wasn't really interested in sports, although everybody else was. I took a, quite an interest in, uh, in doing some of the background work for them. For example, if they were having a sports day, I drew the science for the bulletin board. If they were having a school dance, I prepared the, the science for that and uh, organized many of their school dances although I wasn't particularly interested in school dances uh, per se. And uh, we, uh, I, I took an interest in the Students' Council, spent some years on that. I uh, was Vice President of the Students' Council. I could have been President of it, only I wanted to promote a more backward chap to take that over so that it would help him. And it did. Mm -hmm. It gave him a bit of a boost. He finally went on to the university after he got some confidence, graduated in electrical engineering and established himself in Edmonton as a contractor and is doing exceptionally well in that field. And who is that? That was Jim McBride. Well, there you are, right? Uh, after graduation, uh, well, first I wanted to ask you what you studied there. You said it was different different fields that one could study. I was wondering what, what you, you prepared yourself with. Well, I was very interested in architectural drawing mm -hmm. and I took a three-year course in that from Alderman Gibbs uh, and I might say that when he was in the legislature, Max Dewar, who later became city architect, filled in for him during the six weeks he was in the house. And uh, then on other occasions when uh, Max Dewar became a city architect and couldn't take that role on, Johnny Rule, who was a, a teacher, taught us history and 
architectural drawing. And Johnny Rule eventually became the senior partner of Rule, Wynn and Rule of Edmonton. And I remember when he was just leaving, one of his first projects was to uh, uh, design a funeral parlor, uh, which was located on the corner of 111th Street and Jasper Avenue. I believe it was Andrews and McLaughlin. That was one of his first buildings. It's still there? Yes. Uh, Mike Stewart in those days, uh, I don't remember just what year it was, but he did design the Corona Hotel. Mm -hmm. And after the big fire, he, he uh, did the design which resulted in the remodeling and the reestablishment of the Corona Hotel. He also designed our city hall. Yes, he did. Yeah. Yes, he did. Something. Yes. Wow. So, you, so you left uh, the Edmonton Technical High School, Mr. Faulkner, and, and you were, first went to work for the city power plant, did you not? Well, before that I, I thought it was time to go back to Ireland for a bit of a holiday. Hmm. And I, uh, I stayed there for a couple of years and then came back and uh, got a position with the Keaton Company as their maintenance electrician and I stayed in that position for four years before going to the city power plant. That's Keaton uh, here in Edmonton? Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's where I got some experience with elevators, escalators and all kinds of uh, electrical maintenance work. Mm -hmm. uh, when I went to the city power plant uh, they were looking for somebody to uh, wire the new water treatment plant mm -hmm. and that was one of the first uh, jobs I took on and we completed that over a period of one or two years because it was a lengthy construction project. About what year would that have been? That would be about 1944. And when that, you saw that project to its end, did you? Yes, we did. And uh, we started on other projects in the plant. Uh, having studied electrical technology at the technical school, it gave me a sort of a broad uh, knowledge of generating equipment, transmission equipment, and uh, uh, a knowledge of rectifiers and generators and turbines and this kind of thing and uh, I uh, was then assigned a job to uh, put in the conduits and the preliminary wiring for the new switch here in the remodeled city power plant. Although I didn't stay long enough to see that finally completed, I left to go to work for the provincial government. That's the uh, Department of Industry and Labor? Well, uh, first of all, I went to the Department of Public Works as an inspector of uh, plants and industrial facilities, as well as uh, conveyance equipment such as passenger and freight elevators, escalators, this sort of thing, having had the knowledge of some elevators and escalators that seem to uh, give me uh, an edge uh, in order to obtain that position. I stayed in that position 
as inspector and investigator of accidents and mishaps for a period of 10 years. And of course, when the oil industry came into its own, the inspection of the oil fields was added to our work. We had to inspect drilling rigs, for example, tank farms, refineries, and um, processing plants for the oil industry. And that was a rather new field. And uh, we had to learn quickly because it was a dangerous area. And uh, we were confronted with investigating fatal accidents, which unfortunately occurred too regularly over that 10 year period. And uh, it meant going out at night on call to investigate very serious accidents work with uh, the coroners and the Mounted Police in coming to some conclusion about uh, how these mishaps occurred and to suggest remedies for prevention of them for the future. Prior to the, uh, uh, the oil boom in the late 40s, uh, I presume most of your time was spent with elevators. Well, we uh, had to inspect all sorts of plants, grain elevators, uh, packing plants, manufacturing plants, flour mills, and uh, industrial plants of all kinds, furniture factories, whatever, so that there was a wide range of inspection work to be done throughout the province in uh, looking at uh, hazardous conditions. Uh, today they call it occupational health and safety and in yeah. those days we tried to interest them in that. Mm -hmm. Changing the name, changing the function, but it took 20 years for that to come about. Would, was there, uh, you know, in your opinion, an excessive amount of, of accidents, including fatal accidents, due to working conditions? Yes, there were. It was, uh, uh, we, they were working with uh, what we call green men, as a rule. There was a lot of highballing taking place, which means rushing the job. They were working at night a lot. The lighting was poor. We were instrumental in establishing some standards for lighting for operations at night, such as drilling rigs, and having these brought into effect so that uh, at least the people who were working at night could see where they were walking and what they were doing. And this was very important to bring in uh, higher standards of wiring, higher standards of lighting for uh, oil field operations and uh, this was a step forward which we thought was uh, very timely and very necessary. Would, would, this, would your recommendations, I presume, would go to the Deputy Minister or the Minister, I would imagine? Well, we made recommendations in many areas as well as to the people above us but also to um, the Oilfield Technical Society, to the Oil Well Drilling Contractors Association, and to uh, all the operators in the field. 
one technique we used, for example, was uh, following an inquest, and uh, we, uh, they were always very serious. Uh, we uh, produced what we called the green paper. I don't know whether it was because I was Irish or not that got this name, but in that green paper we would describe the accident, uh, on what facility it occurred, where it occurred, how it occurred, and what happened. Uh, without naming names, we weren't interested in exposing, say, a company or a person, but we did make it known that this mishap occurred, and we would send it to everybody in that industry. If it occurred in grain elevators, every grain company and every grain elevator got a copy of that green letter. If it occurred on a drilling rig, every drilling company got one, and every pump supply house and every every one of the companies that were in the secondary industries supplying cable or pipes or whatever, they got notified of that, and we even sent them to the head offices in the States so that if a defect occurred in a piece of equipment, and we had many of these tested at the university. We tested more welded joints, more wire ropes, more pieces of equipment than you could imagine. In order to uh, bring to the fore the uh, importance of having uh, proper equipment, properly tested, and uh, sufficiently strong for the duty that was uh, required of it. Did, did any of your investigations ever result in a change in regulation or even legislation? Oh yes, oh many of them, many of them. Uh, for example, uh, cat heads on drilling rigs, which is known as a, to most people as a capstan, if we're on a boat for example. But uh, the cat heads came in without guards on them for splitting the rope. And uh, if there's no splitting guard, the rope can foul up, cause all kinds of trouble. Uh, the people up on the formal board at the top of the rig had no way of getting away in the case of a blowout. We required an escape line to be put up with a buggy on it. The buggy was put up there and uh, all the fella had to do was jump on it and release it and they come flying out down to the ground a couple of hundred feet away from the rig. Uh, there were many other other safeguards, such as two lines on a, on a set of tongs with proper fastenings. Uh, when there was one line on a tong and it broke, you had no, you had no safeguard. The tong would swing around and hit somebody and kill them. Uh, these tongs are powered by the motorman using the cat head and uh, the uh, are, uh, they're going fast. They're, uh, they have to be. Uh, you have to make sure that they're going to hold. That they're not going to break during an operation. So uh, putting two lines on a set of tongs was a great help. And we feel that many of these uh, safeguards uh, 
were uh, were very helpful. Uh, for example, they used to have dog houses up on the derrick floor. That's the little house where the fellows sat when they weren't working, eating their lunch and so on. Uh, many of them, the doors opened inway, inwards. Well, we required that the doors all opened out, that they should all open in the direction of exit travel, mm -hmm. so that if something blew up on the rig floor, it didn't slam the door close on them, or close them in the building. Mm -hmm. It would blow the doors out, and they could go out and down the stairs. And there were hundreds of other little things that were incorporated into regulations. Uh, I must sorry to say as a result of many mistakes and many accidents but we felt that no accident uh, no lesson when it was learned should be hidden from the industry and that was why we sent around the green letters mm -hmm. uh, did you ever have a situation where what appeared to be an accident was indeed foul play Uh, no, I can't say that we we did. There were, I, I can't recall any any situation where we found it other than uh, what you might call ignorance, carelessness, or sloppy operations. But I think you were thinking of something that was done intentionally. Yeah, like something malicious. I I don't recall that. I think the fellows working on the rigs were pretty, um, uh, pretty. Uh, although they were a, a fairly hardy bunch, I I never found any of them to be malicious. I think the reason I asked Mr. Bodner is that you'd mentioned the RCMP would often be there. Oh, and this well, is what I, well, I thought well, perhaps. Well, let me tell you, explain that. When a fatal accident occurs anywhere. Generally, the mounted police are the first to hear about it. And at that time, we had written into their orders a requirement under Section 90 in their rule book that they had to notify us if they heard of a fatal accident in the industry. So if a, if a mounted policeman out at Valley View or, or Redwater or Stettler or anywhere else heard of a fatal accident, he would phone us because he had our phone number in his order book and he would go to the accident and do his investigation and so would we and uh, quite often we found things that they didn't find uh, we were we had a bit of a, a drop on them because a lot of these young mounties weren't familiar with these industries and uh, we uh, having gone to them day in and day out, were pretty familiar with how they operated and what might happen and what could have happened. And uh, we were quite often very helpful to the Mounties in preparing their report. And quite often we found evidence that they had missed if they had gone before we arrived. And that has happened. Could we talk uh, for, for a bit, uh, Mr. Faulkner, about your public service? And I think you entered the uh, public service scene via the Edmonton Public School Board. Is, is that was that your first um, first yeah. elected office? 
Yes, it was, and that came about rather accidentally. Uh, I had uh, borrowed some money to build a house, and uh, I uh, had two lots, and at that time you were required to build on every lot or give it up. And I had bought two lots side by side. And one reason I bought the second lot was that it was full of trees, and I just loved it. I thought it would be a nice park area beside my house. But the uh, city, after I got my first house up, required me to either build on the lot or sell it. So I went back to the insurance company that I had borrowed the money from, and they sent me to the insurance man in the department. And he said that I had overextended myself and I could not get another loan. Uh, so I felt rather dejected about this. And uh, having been an electrician, I had at one time done some wiring for the head of this insurance company, never knowing that I would have to approach him with regard to a second loan. The man had known me exceptionally well. He'd been very pleased with the work I had done for him. So he instructed his insurance man to give me a loan. And the insurance man was very angry. He said, these things have to stand on their own feet. He said, you don't qualify. And that is it. So I went back to the manager of the insurance company and he got on the phone and he phoned up Mr. Cumming and he said, Mr. Cumming, give Jim a loan. And he asked me, how much do you want? And I said, $8,000. He said, give him 8500 Well, now this didn't make Mr. Cumming any happier. So he, I suppose it was one of the things that had been annoying him in, in the insurance business, but he eventually gave me the loan. I started the house, I built it, and I still have it. I've rented it ever since. However, that isn't the point of the story. This insurance man was a member of the public school board, and he was so upset with this that he resigned from the public school board and went down east. And the manager of the insurance company said to me, he said, well, now that you've got your house going, he said, why don't you run for Mr. Cummings' job on the school board? <laughs> sort of like insult to injury. <laughs> so I did. I did. And I was elected. And that's what got me into the school board. Did, was this in a, in a by-election or did they no, wait until... This, we were getting close to the end of the term. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many months this seat was vacant, but it was about six mm -hmm. months vacant. And I had a fair amount of time to think about it, but I had made up my mind the day he mentioned this, that I would just do that. But what year was that? That was in 1953. Mm -hmm. And I had just got through building the second house when the election came on, and I was all raring to go. Did you run on a slate that time? 
Yes, I did. I ran on the Citizens Committee slate, and uh, uh, as it happened to be, we were elected. They were all elected that year by acclamation. Now, I didn't know that at the time, but that's the way it worked out. Nobody ran against us, mm -hmm. so the four of us were elected. And uh, then I stayed two years on the school board, and uh, they asked me to run for city council, which I did. However, I'd like to talk about your city council a little later on, but you, you came back to the school board after serving on council, did you not? Yes. You know, and, uh, and uh, that, when did you come back to the school board? Uh, it was about 1961 or so. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I think you ran then on the Civic Government Association ticket. Yes, I did. I, I ran, uh, it was probably 1960, I, I decided to come back. Um, and uh, the, that was the year of the BEA uprising, the Better Educational Association. Mm -hmm. It was a, a teacher-sponsored group uh, caused by the teachers generally being unhappy with the present board, and they were, they were determined to get rid of them. Mm -hmm. And of course, they weren't able to get rid of them all in one year like they did in Calgary a year ago because at that time there were four elected one year and three the other. So they got rid of the, the ones who were uh, being re-elected. And, uh, and did you replace one of those? Uh, no, I, I lost out. I came in, I came in uh, oh, uh, fifth, I think, when there were four to be elected. Mm -hmm. However, the next year I decided to run again when there were three to be elected and I came in second. Mm -hmm. So uh, the, uh, the furor had died down a bit, I presume, about the teachers being so upset and uh, the, I was elected uh, in between two of the better education people, in between Dr. Lizard and Mrs. Sinclair. Mm. Came in second. Pretty stiff competition. It was. <laughs> to say the least. It was. <laughs> yes, it was. And Dr. Gaynor, a very well-known professor at the university, lost out that year. But he did what I had done. He ran the next year and got elected mm -hmm. and stayed one year. Um, had the Citizens Committee by then pretty much faded into non-existence? Is that why you ran on the uh, Civic Government Association ticket rather than your old, your old ticket of uh, Citizens Committee? Well, it was almost the same thing. I think it was just a change of name. It was uh, generally regarded as the businessmen's group, and it, it was a really a good idea because the people who organized the election campaign had really no personal interest in uh, in the, in the matter, other than to see that good candidates were uh, put forward, and that proper meetings were held, and that some uh, publicity could be given to the campaign, arranging forums for them to speak at, 
and to make it a little easier for people to get their message across to the public. Uh, it wasn't so much a click as sometimes it was labeled, uh, because many of the people had no particular axe to grind in the matter at all. And I, I found them uh, very, very reasonable. They never phoned you up afterwards when you were elected and wanted you to do this or that. They never heard from them until three years later. So I, I found them to be... Uh, it's too bad that that system disappeared because it, it was a... It was a good arrangement. Mm -hmm. You ran again uh, in 1964 on the um, Better Civic Government Committee ticket. And uh, is that once again just a, uh, um, well, it is virtually the same group, is yes. it not? Yes, it was a sort of a change of name, a few different people involved, and it was to give it a new look. Uh, there were always groups springing up, such as the BEA one year and some other group the next year, and uh, that uh, that was just a a group to uh, uh, bring together a bunch of candidates who could uh, team up and uh, bring bring some policies to the fore that the public could understand. Indeed, and I presume you shared certain philosophies and principles. Yes, but not necessarily everybody was of one mind. There was nobody tried to brainwash anybody else, and quite often there was a vigorous disagreement amongst some of the members. Well, for instance, uh, I think in the 64 election campaign for uh, public school board members, the issue was uh, the rental of textbooks. Yes. I uh, advocated the rental of textbooks because I, I did feel that uh, the cost of textbooks was quite high for people who only used them one year and uh, that many of the people in the low income brackets weren't able to afford new textbooks all the time and as new courses were coming in and new options available there were more and more textbooks required and uh, I thought that it would be uh, something that the school board could do to help students to uh, have a library of textbooks which they could rent and use them over and over for two or three years and uh, then dispose of them. First of all, they could buy them in bulk and they could sell them again uh, when there weren't any more on the curriculum. And uh, this was a good thing that was widely accepted. Was it actually implemented? Yes, it was. Mm -hmm. Still in effect today. I see. So I'm sure it must give you some gratification to know you had a hand in that. That's right. It was something that I thought was worthwhile. Not to mention having put a couple of kids through high school yourself. <laughs> Three of them, yes. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> could, could we talk, uh, Mr. Faulkner, about some of the people you dealt with when you were on the school board? You mentioned earlier uh, Dr. Uh, Emily Lazert, uh, for whom the high school is named uh, today. Uh, what sort of man was he? The professional well, educator, was he not? He, yes, he was a very uh, quiet man. He, he wasn't really a politician, he was an educator. 
he spent a couple of years on city council. I think he was misplaced there. Uh, I think he was better on the school board. Uh, he was interested in education. He had uh, uh, done quite a number of studies in education uh, for uh, various uh, agencies. He had been a superintendent. He had been dean of education at the University of Alberta and uh, had uh, been uh, sort of known as Mr. Education for many, many years. And uh, uh, everyone knew that if he ran for school board, he'd be elected. And uh, I was quite uh, pleased when I almost beat him for number one position. Indeed, indeed. Would you say he was an easy sort of man with whom to work? Oh yes, yes, there was no trouble. Uh, over the years I have found uh, most of the aldermen and school trustees very easy to work with, with one or two exceptions. Mm -hmm. um, you worked with Edith Rogers, did you not? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, she had her own philosophy and her own way of operating. It was certainly very different to mine and uh, I found it difficult agreeing with her on most occasions. I believe that she ran on a different ticket than you did. Uh, yes. She yeah. ran on something called the Quality Education Committee. Yes, she organized a group of uh, citizens to run with her and uh, she was the only one elected. I see. Now, you, uh, you left the, uh, the, the school trustees in 64. That was your last term, was it yes. not? Indeed. Um, I'd like to backtrack a bit and, and talk about uh, the Citizens Committee uh, in that it was on that same slate or ticket that you ran for city alderman back in 55 originally, mm -hmm. right? So I guess there was some uh, sort of political connection between the, 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 the school trustees ticket and the aldermanic ticket. Is that correct or am I, is it just the same Well, uh, the, both organizations always supported a mayorality candidate. The five aldermanic candidates and the three or the four school board candidates depending on which year it was. So uh, when they held a rally at nomination time, they always uh, uh, endorsed a mayor mm -hmm. and uh, five aldermanic candidates and four or three uh, school board candidates. And well, in 1955, when you first ran for city council, uh, the head of the citizens committee would have been the morality candidate, uh, uh, Mayor Horlap. Would that not have been the case? He was the one who. Uh, uh, I just forget who was the president at that time. It would either be Mr. Clark or Peter Miskew or some other businessman like those two. Uh, they uh, had a committee that met, Committee of Citizens, who, who, whose names were published on their letterhead. Some very well-known people who got together and uh, decided on nominating certain people. And there was also an opportunity, of course, to nominate people from the floor, and quite often people were elected who were nominated from the floor. Mm 
Uh, but uh, uh, Mr. Horlick was uh, nominated uh, several times for mayor by this group, and uh, several times successful. Oh, indeed. Yeah. Every time except once. Yes. <laughs> you know, he's just tremendous. Uh, sometimes by acclamation, he would yes, win that's the, right. the morality. Uh, yes. You know, uh, I would like to talk, if we could, uh, Mr. Faulkner, about some of the issues of that 1955 election campaign. I realize that that's getting to be a while ago. It's almost that's 30 true. years ago. Yes, it is. Uh, for instance, uh, I understand that you favored the ideas other members of the Citizens Committee did of putting a bridge, a new bridge, over Mill Creek. Yes. Uh, I raised that very early in the game. I was fairly familiar with it. Although I lived on the north side, I belonged to the South Side Businessmen's Association for 17 years and attended their meetings, and as a result of this, became quite, and I did it for that reason, so that I wouldn't just be a North Sider. Mm -hmm. uh, because as you know, at one time there were aldermen from the South Side, there were aldermen from the North Side. And each had their own biases and interests and so forth, and I didn't want to do that. So I was quite interested in the, in the South Side and uh, advocated a new bridge over the Mill Creek uh, ravine because the old one was twisted. It came over at a Z-type. It was like a Z. Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't straight like it is today. And uh, uh, I suggested uh, putting one lane in, you know, do it piecemeal if they couldn't afford to do it all at once. And I suggested also making it so that our roadway could eventually be uh, placed in the valley below because they would eventually need a valley road through Mill Creek. And I still believe they should have one there. It was a mistake to not do it, as it was a mistake to not put one down the McKinnon Ravine. And they did design the bridge so that it would accommodate a roadway. I was disappointed when they put the swimming pool in there, which was a, a piece of nonsense and a very unpractical thing in the River Valley only partly used uh, to be an obstruction in the way of putting a decent roadway down there because many, many a time the only people down in the Mill Creek Ravine were people robbing birds' nests or throwing old tires into the ravine. Uh, it would have been much better to have had a scenic drive through there that the people could have enjoyed the people up in the top would have been more, no more annoyed than the people are at Road Road. Uh, however, there were a few hotheads who fought this, and the city council was weak-kneed and listened to them, unfortunately, so that you have a traffic congestion now, which is partly caused by their short-sightedness in not putting a road down the Mill Creek Ravine and in not putting one down the McKinnon Ravine. You, uh, in that campaign, there was also talk of, uh, of a bridge somewhere in southeast Edmonton, um, to, to going north-south, I believe, I would imagine. Yes. Well, this was before they built the, uh, the Capilano Bridge. Now, there were those who felt that it should go at 50th Street, 
there were those who felt that it should go out, or it is, down the, in, the, in the Capilano area. Um, I had no particular preference. I think they needed probably one at both areas. And they'll eventually have to put one at 50th Street yet. However, they uh, argued over the uh, Capilano one saying that it would ruin everything, it would ruin the golf course, it did no such thing. Uh, it uh, was a good move when you look back at it. It was uh, very good, just as on the road up the road, road was good. Mm -hmm. Do you have any, uh, any thoughts on the design of the road? The, uh, I think it would probably have uh, made it straightened out a little. I think a little. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There may have been the thought that uh, it would slow traffic up and let them enjoy the scenery and keep it from being a speedway. Now, that may have been in the back of their minds with some justification, you know. Uh, now, where they don't do that, they now put speed bumps and uh, Bruce Hogel was suggesting that the other day on television that they put speed bumps at certain places to slow people down. Mm. And they do it in uh, parking lots today, they do it on streets in Edmonton. Mm -hmm. uh, this may have been with that same thing in mind. Yeah. Well, also, uh, Mr. Faulkner, you supported the uh, establishment of a new Southside police station, another Southside issue. Yes. And, uh, w uh, just before you comment on that, was there uh, a particular, uh, particularly bad crime situation in the city then, or in the Southside then, or uh, if, you could, if you could talk about the police station and the crime situation, I'd appreciate it. Yeah. Well, the reason for the police station was that their old police station, which had been there for years, was dilapidated. It was run down, it was completely inadequate. Uh, the reason they didn't fix it up was because they thought, well, everything will operate from the north side and people will be in cars and uh, that there's a new concept for policing and they may not need to invest money in a police station, but I think they did. And uh, looking back now, I should have suggested not only a police station on the south side, but two of them. One on the east end, one on the west end, and one on the north side, all of which they have done since that time. But this was the foot in the door. This was to show that you can't operate a police department from central, from a central position. The police have to be quick on the scene, they have to be readily accessible, they can't come from City Hall to Mill Woods very easily or to Jasper Place. Uh, so that uh, the uh, providing of fire halls, uh, substations for electric light, sub-police stations, to me all made, made sense way back then. And I was trying to get the city to decentralize their uh, services uh, so that, and we did this with the school board recently. In the last uh, three years, for example, all the maintenance used to be done from First Street and Fifth Avenue. 
now we have three areas for school board maintenance and that made sense and that is just a reflection of the same concept that we could see Edmonton growing and that it would be necessary to uh, build uh, facilities in the uh, developing areas to provide police and fire services and that sort of thing. It wasn't because of the crime. It wasn't because they had a lot of crime on the south side. It was, uh, in fact, a lot less then than it is today. But uh, I could see the need for uh, having utility services, places where you could pay your light bills and so on, on the south side, as well as up at the city hall. And those kinds of things have now been done. There was also uh, a movement afoot during that election campaign to establish a zoo in Laurier Park. Now, I wasn't able to find out whether or not you were for or against. Well, I uh, was on city council at the time, and I was very interested in the zoo as one of the committees uh, that attracted my attention. Uh, the city council appointed another member and I on the board of the Zoological Society, which was operating in the city at that time. And uh, that had a lot of prominent people on it. And uh, their uh, main objective was to promote a children's zoo. It's something like what's happening now where they're trying, another organization is trying to get a children's hospital established in Edmonton. Mm -hmm. Just a parallel promotion. Mm -hmm. uh, the city council felt that they should have two members on this board, and uh, so I was one of them. And uh, we uh, decided to recommend uh, the uh, site where the children's zoo is. Storyland Valley Zoo uh, for the zoo. Uh, and it was it started as a children's zoo to begin with, with the intention, with the full intention of making it a full fledged zoo. However, there was one thorn in the ointment, and that was Al Oming was on this board. And Al Oming uh, had ambitions of his own and I don't think he helped the idea of expanding the zoo because he wanted to start a zoo of his own outside the city and he did so we only got as far as the children's zoo now there were all these free enterprisers who and do-gooders around town who have the opinion that why should the city do something or the government do something if private enterprise can do it. And these same people sometimes say that free enterprise can do it better and do it cheaper. Now whether those things are right or wrong, I leave that to you to decide. But I'll mean uh, gave us no support in extending the zoo beyond a children's zoo. 
And when he started his zoo, all these people that I refer to says, well, why should we build this when all Oming's doing it for nothing? Why should we saddle the taxpayers with the capital cost of a major zoo when there's one next door provided by a private enterprise? And this made sense to everybody but me. So how did you answer that? I had a feeling that private enterprise would eventually let us down, which they did. Al Oming's gone, his zoo is not next door, and we do not have a zoo. And now the people down there have encroached into the area. They have built lovely homes, and they at this point don't want the zoo that we could have built at that time without the slightest opposition. So, the city got uh, left in the position of depending on private enterprise who could do it cheaper and better. And today, where is it? I ask you, where is our new zoo? Now, they, somebody at this late date has suggested that now we go ahead with the zoo. And everybody down in that area is fighting it tooth and nail because they don't want a zoo anywhere within half a mile of their house. Which? And I can understand them. I can understand them. In other words, by listening to Al Loming, and I know Al well, and he means well, and he has been a very ambitious and successful man, and I congratulate him. But, he left us holding the bag. Indeed. <laughs> you know, uh, one of the issues that always seems to come up when uh, you're running for public office is that you always like to talk about the city electoral system. Now, in 55, uh, you were suggesting that they should increase the size of council by two members. I think then there were 12, and you thought 14 would be uh, best. Um, what prompted you to suggest two, two more? Well, I, I felt that if you ask for too much when you're dealing with people whose minds are limited and haven't a broad, long-term view of what's going to happen, when you're dealing with people who live onto themselves for today, and we had to deal with those kinds of people, you have to give it to them a spoonful at a time. Because if you were to suggest six members, which we should have done, they would choke on it and you would get none. So I thought it better to suggest two and win than suggest six and lose. And I did the same with the school board. Later on, there was a, a limit by legislation on the size of a city school board. And I raised a bit of a, a concern about this, and the government responded by opening the act and changing it to allow an increase. See, I, I felt that the city had increased quite a bit since the amalgamation of 1912, mm -hmm. and uh, that we, we needed more people to spread the load 
and to uh, get better representation as I did with the school board and uh, I, I didn't think that uh, a lot of people used to argue that a small committee is best you know uh, that's not necessarily so on our present exhibition board there's probably 26 members it works fine there's never been a quarrel about it you haven't heard it mentioned in 10 years uh, the uh, hospital board worked very, very well for many, many years with 15 members until somebody thought it should be reduced. It hasn't worked any better since it was reduced than when it was 15. Mm -hmm. In fact, probably not as well because I've heard of more hospital problems. You hear about nurses' strikes, doctors withdrawing their services even today. Mm -hmm. Actually, right on today. Yes. This very day. Yes. <laughs> Uh, I don't think taking good minds away from a board table and reducing the number of brains around a table is a good thing. What you do need is a good chairman who can keep control of that thing and take the best out of the 15 members. Well, and speaking of chairman, and if one wants to look at city council as a board, which is really, you know, in many ways what it is, Bill Horlack was the, the master mm -hmm. chairman, was he not? Mm -hmm. Yes, he was. I think his leadership abilities were extraordinary. Would you agree? Or? Yes, he, 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 was, uh, he was good at that. He, uh, he, he kept people from talking in circles and uh, mentioning the same thing for the fourth time. And he uh, tried to keep a lot of things out of the council that need to be there. Now, for example, there's a lot of zoning things that go to council right now that shouldn't be there. Uh, a, a zoning superintendent should be able to make a decision about a, a lot line or something or other. Uh, I, uh, I know that there were all kinds of things went, uh, went through council in those days that if they had to go today, they would have thought about them for a week. Mm -hmm. And do you feel that in '55 they went through council more quickly due to just the better quality of alder aldermen? That's right. You had you a lot of people say, "Well, Mayor Horlick was a good mayor." Mm -hmm. My answer to that is, first of all, Mayor Horlick had a very good council. And he was a good mayor, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. Would you say during the election of '55 and in uh, consequent elections, uh, when there was huge victories by the uh, Citizens Committee, is, is that you know is it the same sort of logic again? Was it because of Bill Horlack's leadership, or is it because the body was good as well as the head? Uh, the group was good. You had men who had a personal reputation, who uh, got in on their own account, no matter who was mayor. Mm -hmm. uh, if you'd been running a wooden duck for mayor, Dr. Weinloss would have got elected. Abe Miller would have got elected. You see? Mm -hmm. And many others. It wasn't, they didn't get in on, those guys didn't get in on Horlack's coattail. Abe Miller got on on Abe Miller's coattail. 
I see. Well, when you ran in 55, uh, it was for two-year term, was it not? Yes. I see. So, which would bring us to 56, and more issues. <laughs> uh, for instance, uh, public housing was suggested for Northeast Edmonton. Now, uh, do you recall the issue? Well, you uh, tell me some more. It may bring it some back to my mind. Well, 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 basically, it boiled down to that uh, there was a housing crunch in '56. That some people said you can keep down costs and you can put up more units by having public housing, that is, row housing supported by the government. And some people were for it, and some were against it. And perhaps you can tell me whether or not you were for it, against it, or perhaps you didn't take a particular interest in that issue. Well, I uh, I can't recall exactly, but I'm sure I'm sure I would support housing in any form. Uh, I was always uh, in favor of uh, land banking, uh, making lots available because I came through periods when lots you had to wait for your number to come up at City Hall before you drew a lot. I think I, having had an interest in the, in the construction business, although I wasn't in it, I, I wanted to see more housing developed. I one thing I wasn't too keen on was too many row houses or slum type dwellings. Or, or areas that would eventually become slum-type areas being developed. And it bothers me today when they're doing that. Uh, I think if I was on council today, uh, if I voted for that type of row housing in those days, that would be uh, easily understood and uh, something that I could probably support very well without giving it much thought. But some of the stacked housing complexes they put together today in Sherwood Park, for example, and in some parts of Edmonton, are going to create greater problems than they're saving on land and then they're saving on building. Uh, they're going to have a policing problem, they're going to have ghettos, they're going to have the same thing they had in the Watts district in Los Angeles. They're going to have the same thing that they have in the bog site in Londonderry. They're going to have the same thing that they're having in the Falls Road in Belfast. They're going to have cliques and ghettos of people who uh, gang together and exclude other people. And uh, these are unhealthy situations they're going to cause social problems, police problems, and you're going to increase vandalism, arson, crime, and all kinds of other things. I think that the city is making a big mistake by not doing more to protect and to build single-family dwellings and forget about economies, which are false economies, and that is these great ghettos of stacked housing. And the best example of it is in Calgary, opposite the McMahon Stadium. I'm mm -hmm. sure they would have to have two policemen walk on the beat there continuously. 
if they're not doing it now, they eventually will, because these places get run down, and and lower class people come into them with very little respect for other people's property or or common decency, and I'm afraid that the planning that we're doing, the economizing that we're doing, is going to bring that thing on. Speaking of economy, which makes me think of money, uh, in 1956 you were paid the uh, princely sum of $1,200 a year mm -hmm. for, I would imagine, a minimum of 25 hours a week anyway would take your time for counsel, uh, the bare minimum I should think. Uh, so the council awarded themselves an increase to uh, an unheard of 1800 even. <laughs> was, was there much uh, hue and cry over that increase? But not a great deal, because I think most people felt that that was reasonable. Uh, I remember the time when uh, they got nothing for serving on council. For example, the alderman I told you about who taught me in school got nothing for serving as an alderman. Back in those days when uh, James East and uh, uh, Mr. Farmelow and uh, Sloan and Gibbs and all the rest of them at that time they got no money at all for serving on council. I just forget what year it came in, but when it did, it was five hundred dollars a year. And uh, they would they would have probably been better to have not brought it in. Uh, the people who served in those days as aldermen and as school trustees did it because they wanted to give a service to the community, uh, and of course. Some of them were able to do it, some of them weren't quite so able to do it. There were some people who served on council who didn't have too much in the way of worldly goods. You, you speak, Mr. Wagner, of those uh, people who taught you in, at uh, the technical school, and you mentioned earlier that one of them was Max Dewar. Yes. And uh, what makes me think of him again is that when I think of the year 56, uh, the city hall was uh, was being discussed and plans were being made, and it's rather odd that when you were an alderman, the fellow who designed the city hall was also the fellow who was your teacher. Yes. Back in, in school days. Yes, he, as I said, he taught me during the period when Alderman Gibbs was in the legislature. You see, he used to take time off to go to the session, and of course he was excused for that period, and they had to have a substitute teacher, and he had to be a a draftsman or an architect because we were taking architectural drawing. And it was a fairly senior course in architectural drawing and uh, uh, Max Dewar and Johnny Ruo between them filled in uh, during the period that Alderman Gibbs was in the legislature. At that time there were four labor members in the legislature. There was uh, Chris Pattinson from Edson, uh, Lizzie Mayer from Calgary, and the chap from Lethbridge. There were four of them sitting as Labour members, and this was before the CCF time and before the NDP period. Mm -hmm. And of course, they were on the opposition side of the House with a few Liberals, such as John J. Boland and George H. Van Allen and a few conservatives like D.M. Duggan, the former mayor, mm -hmm. and 
Hugh Farthing, the judge, who sat on that side of the house. So it was, it was an interesting period politically and, uh, and a period of important change, far more important than we thought. As an alderman in 56, 57, in that period, when the new city hall was being designed, did, did you as an alderman have much contact with Mr. Dewar as far as the design and the type of building the city was going to get and costs and that sort of thing? Did, did you have much direct contact with the people involved? Well, there were reports came to council on the costs on the design and of course there was a model of it and, uh, and uh, plans of it for us to look at. It appeared uh, it appeared so much in the, of an improvement mm -hmm. over what we had. You see, we had a, a council chamber on the second floor of the old civic block, mm -hmm. and it wasn't anything to write home about, and it was completely inadequate. So anything like that looked so much better that everybody was delighted that we were getting a new building, brand new building. And uh, it would have underground parking. It would have uh, two elevators with room for a third one in the, in the bank. It had provision for extension to the north. There was going to be lots of room for expansion. And uh, we were, uh, they didn't need it all either. There were two floors vacant on the day they opened. I know on the eighth floor we uh, were asked if we could do anything to make it look not so vacant because they were afraid of some criticism of building a building far too big for the needs. Mm -hmm. So we filled it with an historical exhibit mm -hmm. having had something to do with the Archives and Landmarks Committee and we were collecting uh, artwork, pictures, relics, and so on, and we developed a uh, um, collection which uh, made uh, it uh, attractive for people who happened to be visiting the city hall. If they had nothing else to do, they could go to the eighth floor and look at some relics. Mm -hmm. Indeed. And they they uh, tried to get us to attract the school board into these two floors because they were unused and there was a proposal made along that line and I was not only against it but I was angry at the proposal because the school board had some space in the old civic block where the old council was and they were kicked out when they needed space so I said don't let this happen again you've got all kinds of other opportunities go into the Victoria High School, go into anything, build a new building. So they went into the Victoria High School for a year or two until they built the Turner Building on 7th Avenue and 1st Street. And then, of course, they built another big building beside it some years later. But they didn't get hooked on going in temporarily into the new city hall and then being kicked out before they got their furniture all settled. Were you quite satisfied with the building? 
um, once it was done? Well, I was, uh, I, I watched them build it, and I, I could always kick myself for not saying I told you so, but I never did tell you. I, I saw them putting the slabs on the side of the building mm -hmm. and being interested in building construction and architecture and drawing. I thought it was a poor job. However, I thought, well, why should I criticize my old teacher who was supervising it and uh, the engineers who are very experienced? So I said nothing, but I did think it was a rather poor job. Eventually, they started coming loose, and I, I was uh, not that it would have done much good to say I told you so, but I wasn't surprised. They, they, did, they did have some engineering problems with that. Yes, with the uh, uh, marble slabs being too heavy for the hangers that they put them on. Exactly, yeah. Mm. Exactly. Um, also, during now, uh, that term, the uh, McNally Commission uh, made a report on metropolitan development. Uh, I should think you'd remember, uh, I think it was Judge McNally, I would presume. No, uh, a, uh, Fred McNally was, um, had been Deputy Minister of Education and he had been a Chancellor of the University. Mm -hmm. He was really an educator. And he, he made a number of recommendations. For instance, uh, I believe he supported the concept that Edmonton should amalgamate with uh, Jasper Place as well as the town of Beverly. Yes. Uh, both of which did, of course, happen. Yes. Well, I think that was a good recommendation. I favored it very much. Uh, it, it's very regrettable that in those days, after they had brought, they brought in Beverly and Jasper Place, that they didn't include St. Albert and what is now Sherwood Park. Um, it, it was a mistake, and I think everybody knows it, but few will admit it. Uh, just recently, they had a big few for all about amalgamating St. Albert and Jasper and, and uh, Strathcona. Uh, they should have had no hearings. They should have simply, by uh, an act of the legislature, enlarged the city of Edmonton's boundaries to include. Uh, a good part south of the city, Spruce Grove, uh, St. Albert, and Sherwood Park, without question. Now, how anybody could argue that this wouldn't be a good thing, God only knows. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> uh, also, uh, I, I don't know the details, and it's a rather minor point, so I wouldn't be surprised if you don't recall. But he made some uh, comments and recommendations regarding taxation of industry. Now, I don't know whether he suggested it should be increased or decreased or whatever. Do you happen to recall that point? I realize this is, is almost 30 years ago, and it's yes, not that major an issue. And uh, if I had uh, 
thought I, sh- I should have looked at the McNally report and the minority recommendations of Percy Davis too before I came here. But I, I think they, uh, by bringing them all into one city, that would have all equalized. Uh, I, I think that uh, there was need for a proper assessment of the industrial operations and the acreages and the other single-family lots and businesses. I think that there was too much piecemeal. There was too much opportunity to let each one do their own thing and get out of whack. Whereas, if they had put a large circle around the city, like Don McKay, the mayor of Calgary, wisely did years and years ago, when everybody thought he was crazy, when he said, someday Calgary will be down to Midnapore. Now it's down there long ago. Now when he made that prediction, people thought he had flipped his lid. But that was the time to do it, and that was the time Edmonton should have done these things. Before speculation took place, before poor planning took place, You see, there are many, many things that are affected by uh, little communities doing their own thing. Now, I'm not opposed to St. Albert, Sherwood Park, Spruce Grove, or any other area keeping its identity, but there's certain things they ought to do. They ought to be reasonable enough to not each name a subdivision Greenfield. They should be all sensible enough to not have each a high school known as Saint Laurent. They should all be sensible enough not to make their roads not meet each other properly. They should all be sensible enough to make use of the same water system. They should use their heads when it comes to public transportation. They should use their heads when it comes to policing. And when it comes to these things that are items that affect the total community as a whole. Now, nobody's going to object to them having their own little swimming pools and their own little parks and uh, things that identify them as being uh, something special, fine. But I don't think they should expect somebody else to provide them with an auditorium, for example, and congest our highways and expect somebody else to build an overpass for them. The planning should be on a total uh, overall basis on a big enough area so that these problems don't exist, so that we shouldn't have to have royal commissions, 
so that we shouldn't have to have big debates and so that the planning is done so that uh, it is that it makes sense the uh, the map the mapping should uh, be so that it's readable so that it makes sense uh, so that all these various aspects that we have mentioned are designed and operated and maintained for the good of everybody that's my feeling about this amalgamation business and these people like McNally and his group did a lot of water treading and spinning wheels and so did others and uh, nobody listened. Uh, they, uh, they thought it was, uh, many of these things were good ideas, but a good idea is no good if you don't put it into effect. I think that's a good point uh, on which to turn this tape over, Mr. Faulkner. <laughs> Just about out of tape on this side. Now, what is it? I'm pleased to welcome back Jim Faulkner, who we were interviewing last week. We're picking up again today on December the 4th. Jim, uh, we were last time talking about the different issues on when you were on council in the year 1956. Uh, one of the last issues I wanted to talk to you about was the question of store hours. Now, at the time, I understand that the city was regulating quite heavily how many hours the store could stay open. Could you just give us your general comments on how you feel about the government regulating the hours of a businessman? Well, I think there needs to be some control. I, uh, I believe it was too rigid all along and that's why people wanted it made more flexible. Uh, if it's too rigid there can be some hardships uh, and uh, especially on those people who work shift work and uh, who whose work hours prevented them from uh, being able to shop in a more free and easy way as we do today However, I think uh, they can go too far with this and open it so wide that it is uh, it sort of defeats the purpose of of opening it to some degree. I think uh, people need a day off. There has to be some arrangement whereby people know when stores are open and when they are not open. And I think some order introduced into the uh, commercial picture needs to be done. Uh, I think of the barbers, for example. Uh, the barbers wanted to have a, a day when they would be all closed. Now, the citizens didn't like all the barber shops closed on the same day, and uh, that was regarded as a a poor feature, and it was a poor feature. However, the city council agreed that they could have a full day closed, uh, providing they decided which day they wanted to close, and they would be required to post that on their barbershop. For example, one would close Monday, another Tuesday, another Friday, and so forth. And uh, this arrangement worked out very, very well. 
I, uh, I think that opening up store hours beyond what was intended when this discussion took place uh, is, uh, is uh, not good. For example, I don't think uh, uh, hardware stores and clothing stores uh, need to be open on a Sunday, for example, or on Armistice Day or on Christmas Day and so on. I think there are, there's plenty of time for people to shop uh, during the week and on the nights that uh, would be so designated without having everyone open all the time. Uh, the, I believe this, uh, and it may not suit the large uh, operators, but uh, the small operators would uh, claim that it does. Uh, the uh, small merchant, uh, the, that is the person who runs his own little shop, whether it's a clothing store or a candy shop or whatever, having, say, he, like a corner grocery, for example, he has to have some free time to himself and uh, he has to have a rest. But if all the other stores are open all day and every evening, he's sort of forced into it or has to make a very hard decision to close and lose some business. So I think it, it's fair to all if there's some regulation that is sufficiently flexible to meet the needs of the community and to uh, be helpful to the smaller businessmen and to the, the workers who uh, should have uh, a greater choice as to when they work rather than being forced to work hours and uh, sometimes long hours which uh, make them very uncomfortable and very unhappy. An unhappy employee and an un unhappy store operator doesn't help the situation at all. Mm -hmm. Also, uh, Mr. Faulkner, and one year later in 1957, it was election year in the city, uh, municipal election that is, you decided to run again for an aldermanic seat. You ran on the Citizens Committee, which in that uh, election uh, took every seat on council, I believe, plus every seat on the school board where a candidate was offered under that banner. They won. Um, what would you say was the, the success of, or what was the reason for the success of the Citizens Committee that, that year? Well, I think although they were all running under the one label, it was like a group of independents running. Uh, the object of this, of course, was to have people in the race who were uh, very interested in being aldermen or school trustees and who had the time to spend on it and had had a good track record of community and civic service behind them. There were many who had uh, tremendously successful business careers and I believe the citizens were happy to see a group uh, come forward and uh, join hands in running for public office, uh, able to cooperate with one another able to uh, sit down and discuss issues, 
disagree without fighting each other and uh, get on with the city business without spending a lot of time in arguments and disputes and uh, all kinds of uproar. The, the people who were running at that time were very sincere people. They were people who wanted to serve and uh, I think that the caliber of people who presented themselves at that time and in the years surrounding that particular year were uh, people who, in whom the city had confidence in. And uh, I'm not surprised that they were all elected. People like uh, Dr. Hugh Harris and uh, oh, Reg Easton, Fred Mitchell, Cliff Roy, and of course Mayor Horlack were all running that year. Uh, do, do, do you recall, having known all those men, does any, any of them stand out in any particular way in your mind as being particularly strong or weak or what have you? Uh, well, they all, they all stand out in their own way. Uh, Hugh Harris was a very brilliant young man. He had uh, studied economics and business administration. He was a most capable uh, young fellow and uh, he uh, contributed a great deal uh, to uh, the discussions in council with regard to uh, budgeting, with regard to matters of finance and uh, many other aspects of, uh, of management in running the city. I think he made a, a tremendous contribution. He was quite an outspoken alderman. Uh, he uh, had a mind of his own. He was very independent and he wanted to see things done properly and uh, gave it his full time and attention. Mm. As far as Fred Mitchell is concerned, he uh, had served a long time on council. I believe he probably served longer than anyone else. I believe he was elected in 1940. He was a sportsman, a businessman, an accountant, and had a wide and varied experience with business activities. He sort of grew up with the city and was highly respected as an alderman and he gave a lot of time to the business of the city and to attending to the needs of citizens who had concerns and who wanted someone to be a spokesman for them in getting a problem dealt with which was bothering them in connection with their, either their home or their business or any civic matter. Mm -hmm. uh, Cliff Roy also was a businessman uh, having been in the travel business for some time, having um, operated the tuck shop at the university mm -hmm. for many years. Regular little gold mine that was. <laughs> and uh, yes, I think he did very well there. And uh, he also uh, had a funeral undertaking business. So he had a, an all-round business experience. He, he uh, quite often clashed with his fellow aldermen in matters of, of uh, policy and in matters that were before council, but 
there were always uh, a solution to these problems that arose and he was one who could compromise, he was one who could speak his mind and uh, I think he served well during the years that he was on council. Mm -hmm. And uh, how about Ormond Regis then? Well, Regis too was a, a man I knew well. He served with me on the exhibition board and on other civic boards. He, uh, as you may know, he was in the furniture business in the city. He had a great interest in uh, the city uh, prospering and uh, developing orderly and uh, I think uh, Reg uh, was a very sincere person. He uh, did many things for the city, many important things, uh, many things that uh, maybe people will not remember but uh, one uh, minor thing that he must get credit for and that is retaining the name White Mud uh, Road for that new freeway that goes through the south side. I suppose it was because he remembered uh, in his early days uh, uh, picnicking or swimming around White Mud Creek, as many of us did, and uh, that name, he thought, should be retained. But uh, as far as the uh, many other things uh, to do with the city, he was uh, a very uh, forward-thinking uh, alderman. A man of good judgment, who worked hard at being an alderman and uh, worked hard at other civic boards where he served with distinction. Mm -hmm. And of course, heading council was um, Mayor William Horlack. Could you give us your, your recollections and your feelings of Mayor Horlack? Well, I remember him very well. I remember when he uh, first ran as an alderman and he was defeated mm -hmm. and uh, he ran again and was elected. I remember Mrs. Harlack telling me when I was first running for council, well, Bill was defeated the first time, so if you're defeated, don't let it discourage you. So I took this as good advice. I wasn't defeated then, but I was unsuccessful in a later election. However, I did uh, succeed on two occasions to get on council and this was a very valuable experience working with Mayor Horlack. He uh, was a good chairman. He was reasonable with his aldermen. He uh, handled the meetings uh, very efficiently. And he, apart from what some people may say, he allowed uh, every alderman to speak his mind and to uh, put forth whatever opinions and points of view he had without being in any way uh, stopped or, or discouraged in that. When you say he was a good chairman and efficient <coughs> and so on, which would you say that that could be summed up by saying that he had leadership ability? That yeah. ambiguous sort of word. Yes, he was a, uh, he was a forceful man. Mm -hmm. He was a man who wanted to push ahead. 
he'd, he'd like to see progress. He um, uh, was very impatient when uh, things were not proceeding, and uh, I believe he uh, wanted to not only lead the council but to create an atmosphere where the aldermen themselves could uh, lead in their own way. And this is why I think that part of his success was, in addition to his own abilities, was his ability to let others grow and develop and work with him, rather than fight with them, as has been the case uh, with others. Well, when somebody did disagree with Nehorla, how, how, how strong could he be in, in counteracting uh, this person who has a difference of opinion? Could he be quite a strong fighter? Well, I, I had very few disagreements with him. I think the only time he uh, made me a little angry was when I was uh, dealing with the uh, naming of the McKinnon Ravine, and we had decided to uh, get a colored picture of the ravine taken from the air, properly lettered and framed, uh, to, to be presented to the Honorable James A. McKinnon. I uh, had the picture already. I knew the Honorable Mr. McKinnon was in town at the McDonald Hotel on one of his visits, and I asked Mayor Horlight if he wouldn't mind going over and presenting this picture of the McKinnon Ravine to the Honorable James A. McKinnon. And uh, he said, I will do no such thing. This surprised me because Mayor Horlack was uh, uh, almost the first one to be at any opening presentation or public gathering or handing out awards or anything of the kind. And I was a bit taken aback that he refused to present a picture of the McKinnon Ravine to the Honorable James A. McKinnon. And I started to do a little pressuring, and he said to me, Jim, are you running my office for me? And I said, no, I'm not. And uh, I said, thank you very much. And I went over to the McDonald Hotel, and I gave the picture to McKinnon myself. And he thanked me very much saying it would have a very honored place in his Senate room in Ottawa. And he said, to be honest with you, I like this more, and I appreciate it more, than the Doctor of Law's degree that the university gave me. Did, did you, that's a very nice compliment. Did you ever find out why Bill Horlack was so reluctant? Was it straight politics? Or? I haven't thought of it since. That was one of the things that uh, I just let uh, go from my mind. I never mentioned it to Mr. McKinnon or to Harlight or to anyone else except you now. <laughs> Indeed. Well, I presume that you were, uh, well, to say the least, surprised when uh, Mr. Harlight got into uh, his, his difficulties with conflict of interest. 
now, I don't want to go into a lot of details on this, but on the whole, do you think Mr. Horlack got a fair shake? Well, I, uh, I, n I never tried to judge the case uh, since it was a matter that was before the courts and dealt with by the courts. And uh, I might add that it was dealt with after I left council. Yeah. Uh, so I wasn't in any way involved with it, nor did I have to make any decision with, with regard to it. However, I could um, see some of the trouble brewing, and I, I did go to him once and uh, tell him that one of the people who later became an alderman had some real concerns that I thought he should go and discuss with him and he ignored me, and I left, and that was the end of that discussion. And did that person, was that, was that Ed Ledger? Yes. Yeah, Mr. Wildcat, Mr. Falker. <laughs> also in that 1957 election campaign, there was one outstanding issue, and that was the issue of fluoridization, uh, which was, you know, uh, all the candidates were asked to take a position, but it was also a plebiscite uh, issue, and of course plebiscites then required two-thirds of a majority to pass, and it failed by, you know, just less than one percent uh, to, to pass at that time in '57. Uh, do you recall where you stood on that that issue? I uh, was in favor of fluoridation, and I'm sure it cost me votes and. Uh, and some friends, if they were friends <laughs> at that time. Uh, it was one of the many questions that a great many people weren't sure about. Even the people who voted for it and against it weren't sure. As a matter of fact, the whole issue is being raised again, mm -hmm. down east. I thought it had died in the last twenty years, yeah. but it is being raised and it was on television the other night. Uh, there are people who feel now that uh, fluoridated water is uh, not helpful and that it may even be harmful. Mm -hmm. And that was the mood at the time. Uh, we were taking the advice of uh, uh, dentists and others who were uh, uh, supposedly capable of um, giving us the truth and uh, bringing forward uh, evidence which uh, would support the putting of fluorides in the water. And uh, since we were putting many, many other chemicals in the water, some of which may have been more harmful than fluorides, I think uh, some of us felt that it wouldn't be too harmful. And there was provision made for those who felt strongly about it, to get unfluoridated water by picking the same up at the powerhouse. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Actually, I understand that some of the uh, anti-fluoridization people had some pretty bizarre arguments, uh, including that it was a, a plot by the communists to, uh, to poison everybody. Uh, is that not the case, that it did get to be a pretty 
pretty bizarre sort of situation. Yes, it could be to be rather a controversial matter, and uh, like many other issues uh, which come up from time to time, there are those who take extreme positions, mm -hmm. and uh, there were some who took extreme positions on that. Uh, of uh, another issue of that election, the 57 election, that of a, of a lesser degree, was that, that uh, an overpass on 105th Street uh, going from 4th Avenue to about 6th Avenue was proposed over that CNR property there. And uh, some people were for it, and as usual, some people were against it. Um, would you like to give us your thoughts on that overpass, uh, the need for it or lack of need or what have you? Well, uh, this was um, one of the uh, ways of uh, getting around correcting the Ninth Street uh, underpass, which had been designed some years ago, I believe, by Dr. Morrison from the university, and uh, served quite well while the traffic in Edmonton was rather uh, slow and uh, a lot less volume than there is today, uh, I had suggested uh, to Council one or two ways of improving the traffic scene downtown. One was to either build an overpass at 9th Street or double the, the underpass which exists there now. Neither one was done. I also wanted them to put an overpass over the CPR tracks uh, from 9th Street to uh, 11th Street and have a flow of traffic from downtown right up 2nd Avenue to 24th Street and then on out that way. That was not done. So uh, there were those who felt that uh, a good compromise would be to build an overpass at 105th Street. Uh, one of the shortcomings I could see of this was the fact that it wouldn't go on through to Kingsway. They could have quite easily gone with a little negotiation uh, with the federal government, gone past the armory site, removed some of the Quonset huts there that were there at that time and open it right up to Kingsway. And this would have uh, spread some of the traffic and it, it might have even been uh, a good thing to do something at Kingsway so that 11th Avenue would take some of the traffic. I had thought of uh, uh, one lane overpasses in some places to take care of rush hour traffic so that uh, there would be continuous flows of traffic. Another uh, suggestion was to put in bypass lanes at intersections, but no, they would build right up to the corner, even in places where there were vacant lots, where they didn't have to buy property. They would allow someone to buy the lot, build a house, and thereby, for the time being at least, prevent uh, the bypass lanes from being put in so that everyone wouldn't have to stop every time 
at stoplights. They could swing around. This uh, uh, probably eventually sunk in, and uh, I noticed that it has been done a great deal in many areas since that time. But it certainly would have helped if they had done more of it earlier when they had a good opportunity to do it. Getting away from uh, the 57 election and into the year 1958, when you were still on council, uh, the uh, planetarium, the the one out at uh, Queen Elizabeth, out by Westmount there. Now, the, that came up in council, and I think it was that year that it was decided to build it. And is that, is that not the case? Yes. Do you recall? Could, could you just tell us about what, how that went through council? Was it opposed, or was everybody for it, and why that site just? Your general recollection of the issue? Well, it was one of the firsts in Canada, that type of planetarium, and uh, Edmonton wanted to do a few things that weren't being done elsewhere. Uh, there was some opposition to it, but uh, not a great deal. It uh, had an educational value and uh, therefore was put on the site of the uh, uh, Ross Shepherd Composite High School or adjacent there too, so that it, uh, it did fill a need which was perceived at that time. And uh, it wasn't long until it was discovered that it was too small, but at least the uh, people who promoted it got their uh, foot in the door as it were and got something done. and. Uh, now I understand they're talking about a, a more extensive one. The Space Science Center out yes. by the uh, Provincial Museum. This is right. Right. Just to expand for our listeners' sake, uh, I'm quite sure that that planetarium was the first public one anywhere in Canada. Yes, it was. So it's quite, quite a milestone in yes. city's history. Um, also, uh, I think it was during 1958 that you resigned from council, was it not? Yes. Yeah. And now your term wasn't over. No. Right? But that's pretty rare for, for somebody to resign. Uh, can you tell us why you resigned halfway through the term? Well, uh, it was uh, with mixed feeling, I'm telling you. Uh, once you've uh, tried and been successful in getting on to council a couple of times and enjoying it, I, uh, being a provincial civil servant, uh, during my career had to make some decisions. Some of them were not easy, and that was one of them. I was offered a position as uh, Deputy Chairman of the Liquor Control Board, and uh, I had to decide whether to uh, take that and leave council, or stay at what I was doing and remain on council. And uh, I might point out that there was nobody giving me an ultimatum. It was something I had to decide. That wasn't a matter of either or else. I, I had to make this decision on my own. No one was telling me uh, which way I should go or that I had to do anything in that regard. I, I think I, uh, looking back, I think I made a mistake. I think I should have done both, which I could have done. I, uh, I could see this in later years and uh, corrected it to some degree, 
While I was on the Liquor Control Board, I ran for school board and uh, stayed four years doing both. And uh, the school board work, if you want to work at it, as we tried to do, is uh, just as important as council work. So you figured there would be a conflict of interest, did you, without? Uh, no, uh, not really. I, uh, I suppose when one is uh, making a, a decision in, in short notice, uh, you may not always see far enough down the road, but I could uh, see no conflict of interest uh, whatsoever in, in uh, holding those kinds of, of positions, because uh, I was pretty accustomed to uh, switching gears from one board to another, from one committee to another, from one commission to another, almost weekly and sometimes daily. So, so, the, uh, so, so the reason I'm resigning was the, the workload, I presume? Uh, well, I felt that it was an, a new challenge. Uh, I had no idea what was I was confronted with because I could see uh, quite an expansion taking place in that field. Uh, because they were changing the position from a half-time position to a full-time position. Even that made me aware of the fact that it was going to be more onerous than the person who had held it before, who worked half-time. Now, so you resigned from city council? I resigned at the end of the term, rather, I mean in the middle of of the two-year term, and if you will recall, elections were held each year, so the seat wasn't vacant uh, at all. I just simply resigned at a time when the other election occurred. So but they could elect somebody for that one year left? Yes, and they did. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe Bill Henning, who followed me on school board, also followed me on council by taking that one year. Indeed, indeed. Now, that was not the end of uh, your your uh, aldermanic interest, in that you ran again for, for, for an alderman seat in 1974 election. Now, you ran that time in Ward 2. Did you run in Ward 2 because there were no incumbents? Uh, no, I ran in Ward 2 because that was my home ward where I had lived for 50 years and I thought that that would be logical to run in that ward. But however, I once again uh, made a mistake in not deciding to run until nomination morning. And consequently, I was not prepared. The city weren't, uh, this, the city at large were not informed that I was going to run. And I think many people uh, who would normally have voted for me uh, probably didn't hear of it in time because the election period, uh, it, it takes more than just uh, the election period to get geared up for an election, especially when it's a hotly contested one. You need a little preparation time to prepare speeches, to prepare advertising, to uh, do many other things that go with the campaigning. And I uh, uh, started rather uh, late, uh, 
and uh, I believe I came 14th when 12 were being elected. Well, uh, I think you did better than that, but we'll get to that shortly. Uh, you, getting back to the actual election, though, you uh, ran as an independent that time, did you not? Yes, I did. Right. Now, every other time you ran, you ran on somebody's ticket, you know, uh, civic government, what have you. Do you think that was part of the reason why perhaps you weren't elected? Yes, I think there is something to be said for a group activity. If, um, if I had announced my candidature earlier, there is a, a strong possibility that I would have been amongst the group running. And, and in fact, I was told that by others later who were kind of mad at me for making up my mind at such a late date. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There were a tremendous number of candidates in that uh, running in Ward 4, uh, 17 as a matter of fact, my research showed. And I I thought, and I could be wrong, but I thought you came came in immediately behind the person who got the last seat there, which oh, was yes, David Ledbeater. Yes, I think I might have been uh, confusing it with the previous election. Yes, uh, that's true. I think you came in fourth out of 17. That's true, and, yes. And behind Ledbeater, who was just considered uh, you know, a very fair-haired boy in, in politics at, at the time. Yes, and had strong um, support on the side. Mm -hmm. Uh, around the university in particular, okay. uh, where my support was uh, rather thin mm -hmm. because I always lived on the north side and uh, that may have had, a, uh, had an effect on it. Indeed, uh, uh, one of your, your favorite issues as far as campaigns are concerned and speaking of wars uh, was raised again by yourself in that you proposed that the city uh, revert to the system of electing candidates at large. Uh, is, is that not the case? Yes, I had uh, two proposals. Firstly, I favored the city-at-large method of electing uh, candidates to council. However, I also said that if you are going to have wards, and if that is inevitable, then do it properly. Divide the city into quarters, uh, divided in one way by the river, and uh, north and south at a street which would give you four segments with uh, a pretty well equal population. In other words, it would be like a pie with four sections. Each one would have a little bit of uh, city center, it would have a bit of industry, it would flare out into the residential area, uh, each one would have uh, uh, an opportunity to expand outwards or upwards and that the uh, likelihood of having to change boundaries frequently would be eliminated. I, I think they would be um, small enough to uh, satisfy those who felt that um, newcomers would have a hard time being elected at large where they're only known in one area. It would um, uh, give uh, the uh, population in those areas an opportunity to know their particular candidates or to go to them if they had a problem. And uh, then I, I also felt that 
there should be some provision for electing uh, four candidates at large as well. Uh, those uh, people who had served in a ward for a while could run at large, and this would prepare a candidate very well to be mayor. In other words, he would have the support of the entire city rather than the support of a particular quarter of the city. So that uh, I, uh, I, I didn't think that uh, uh, I, I don't think that single-member wards are a good thing. They can be manipulated too well. I think it's better to have several candidates in a ward, and uh, as long as there are not too many, some people objected to the long ballot, and this is why people clamored for wards. But I think it's like many another civic matter. It can be overdone or done improperly. I think the wards stretching across the city were poorly designed and uh, have uh, not helped the situation at all. Well, one of the uh, other issues during the 74 election uh, was the so-called booze and bingo issue, and that is uh, were we going to allow schools to serve booze after hours as well as to allow the playing of bingo in the school. Now, being uh, an educator, or at least on the school board, which I think makes you an educator, how, uh, you uh, would be very close to this issue. Uh, so how did you feel about it? How do you still feel about it? Well, I was chairman of the school board at the time, and uh, the whole issue started largely in the district of Evansdale, uh, uh, an area called after one of our early distinguished mayors, Mr. Evans, and uh, this particular community uh, wanted to make use of the school rather than build a community hall. And uh, they, uh, the, a compromise was finally reached and uh, a community wing was attached to the school. Uh, the uh, community league people and many others uh, felt that it was ridiculous to force a neighborhood to build a building for after-school activities when there was a school sitting nearby or even on the same grounds closed up and nobody using it. This made sense to a great many people and uh, the uh, residents felt that it's, uh, it's about time we changed our thinking on some of these matters and used the schools after hours for bingos and dances and uh, uh, all kinds of adult activities rather than forcing them into building new facilities. So this matter was brought to the school board and the school board was very divided on the matter and uh, the result, uh, after a great deal of argument and bitterness and uh, debate, it was decided to put the matter to a plebiscite. So the school board uh, did not decide yes or no, but left it to the uh, people to decide. And the matter was um, 
it, it would have passed, I might say, had it been left as the original motion was, and that is, booze and bingo, shall they be allowed. I made an amendment to the motion splitting the two, one being, shall we allow booze, and shall we allow bingo. Uh, the bingo one was passed narrowly and the other one was defeated, but had they both been left together, I believe they would have then both passed. Do you think they should have come left together? Well, in retrospect? I, I, uh, really, I don't think so. Uh, I, think if, uh, I think if there'd only been one vote, and people may disagree with me on this, because a lot of people blame me for favoring it, uh, I think a person who is chairman of a meeting can be blamed many a time improperly for appearing to take sides when maybe all he's doing is giving the people who were for or against something a fair chance to speak. If it had, I think if it had, uh, uh, in the wind-up, if it had depended on me to cast a deciding vote, I would have cast the vote against it. Against the booth and the bingo? Or yes. Yes, against both, eh? Yes. Well, perhaps uh, that issue was exceeded in its uh, ferociousness by only one other issue, and that was the McKinnon Freeway, which is, is still a, an issue in the city, and that is whether to build the darn thing or not. Uh, are you uh, for or against? Well, I think there's no doubt in the wide world where I stand on that, and there never was. I was in favor of building a roadway up the McKinnon Ravine from the very beginning. As I was, uh, I'm glad to see the one built in the uh, Groot Ravine and the Capilina Ravine. I think there should have been a roadway also built up the uh, Mill Creek Ravine and the McKinnon Ravine. They're, the present roadways are very necessary. The ones that they didn't build are, it, it, in fact, it's a great mistake that they weren't built, in my opinion, because uh, the motor car is here to stay for a long time. Rapid transit is very helpful, but it doesn't take the place of the traffic that we have in the city and never will. We'll always have uh, motor cars and trucks and uh, uh, this uh, is very obvious today when you see the trucks on the highways, uh, the railways are not able to handle it. If there were, you wouldn't see trucks by the hundred, by the thousand, going into and out of Edmonton every day. So uh, they, uh, they have to look at not only uh, rapid transit, but also a free movement of, of automobiles and uh, light delivery trucks, taxis, buses for the handicapped, and so on. There is a great need for, for a movement because there's a lot of time spent by people sitting at traffic lights, at stop signs, 
and this to me is a waste which has never been measured and I would have built six roads down the McKinnon Ravine I'm sure in the last 30 years. When when you left City Council, Jim, you, uh, you mentioned earlier you went to work for uh, ALCB. Uh, from a member you rose to uh, position of chairman. Vice chairman. Yeah. And did, you were not appointed the chairman? No. Well? No. Oh. There was a year when we didn't have a chairman, but uh, we were uh, carrying on as though we did have one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and from there, you, uh, I think, called a transfer to uh, the chairmanship of the Alberta Health Care Insurance Commission. Is that correct? Th- this is correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason I asked you about this is that when uh, the uh, Alberta healthcare was implemented. I, there was a great deal of controversy. A lot of people resisted. They burnt their cards, and they thought the socialists were knocking at the door. Uh, could, could you just talk a little bit about the, the climate of fear and loathing and so on that was that was going around at that time uh, about, uh, for lack of a better word, socialized medicine? Well, it it seemed to me that the general population of Canada were in favor of it. If they hadn't been, it wouldn't have gone in. Uh, There were a lot of people against it. Something like the Constitution and other arguments which we have had to put up with recently. there was a, a feeling that everyone should have equal access to medical services and also that it should be uh, not necessarily free, but it, it, it shouldn't be such that it would bankrupt someone if they had an illness. I think it's just like any other insurance it uh, takes care of the difficult times and it had many good features and people maybe didn't realize that it had so many good features even the medical profession uh, it, uh, it eliminated their bill collection it eliminated a lot of bookkeeping for the medical profession. Uh, They were, I might say, quite, at least uh, we were advised that they were quite content with their own medical services incorporated arrangement. And I must say that worked well. It worked well. And it may even get back to that. It may even, these things go around in cycles, you know, and it, it depends I suppose in the mood of the people, there may be some other arrangement which will take the place of this. Uh, I notice in the papers now there is a group known as the Friends of Medicare. Well, there were certainly no Friends of Medicare when I was running it. It was enemies of Medicare from every direction. And it was an uphill grind getting it going in six weeks from a dead start. But it was uh, put into operation in the six weeks, and the doctors were paid pretty soon after that, 30 or 40 days later. So that the uh, provinces were 
obliged to go into it because of the funding. And uh, like every other federal or many a government proposal, funding fades away later on as things get going. And uh, it, at the time, it, it seemed to work quite well. And uh, the federal government contributed about half the cost of Medicare across the country. And uh, they covered uh, many uh, situations that would have been very difficult for the average person to pay. And I think that was one of the reasons that people uh, accepted it and, uh, and went along with the idea, as well as the fact that they had to pay premiums. A lot of people objected to the compulsory payment of premiums. We made it possible for people to opt out of the system if they didn't want to be in it. And uh, there were many adjustments made to accommodate uh, the various uh, forces and uh, professions that were involved in the, in the national scheme. Uh, I understand that you, uh, you resigned from this position and, uh, quote, retired. Close the quote. Uh, what year did you leave uh, the uh, Health Care Insurance Commission? Well, I, I think I said at the time that I was not retiring, but that I was just going to pension because I wanted a change of scenery. I had uh, been in the government service on a day to day basis for a long, long time, and uh, the government had asked me to serve on other committees and uh, there was somebody available to carry on where I left off and uh, I was glad at that point to uh, have a change of, of pace. It had been a very heavy load. It was going good at the time I left. It, I don't think it has um, been any smoother since. I know the other two chairmen have left since that time, but I enjoyed it while I was there. It was a very interesting work. It was a busy time, but I, I just felt that it was time to uh, have a change of work. I had had I'd made changes before, and I thought it was time to make another one before I got to uh, too old, you might say, uh, having planned to retire uh, before I did, I uh, ran again for school board, making my second comeback. And uh, I had been on the school board a couple of years, and I was looking forward to being chairman and one thing and another. I had other jobs I wanted to do. So I decided to go to the pension since I was a pensionable. Uh, I had pensionable years in, and uh, decided to spend a lot more time in the field of education, and uh, that's exactly what I did. I uh, 
became, became chairman of the school board. I was on the insurance board that deals with employee benefits and uh, also the insurance board that deals with uh, building insurance for municipalities and school boards and on their uh, provincial executive and also as vice chairman of the provincial association. And at the same time, I was on several government committees. I'm sure. Well, I'd like to take advantage of this opportunity, Mr. Faulkner, to wish you the very best in the future. And I'd like to thank you for coming in two weeks in a row and sitting down with me and making a, an oral history that will, I'm sure, benefit many researchers in the future. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. It's been nice talking to you. You're welcome. This material is a digitized audio recording from the holdings of the City of Edmonton Archives. For more information regarding the recording, please contact us by email at cms.archives at edmonton.ca, by phone at 780-496-8711, or on our online catalog at cityarchives.edmonton.ca.